It's no surprise that updating the electricity grid today will make for a better tomorrow. Increased self-sufficiency is just one of the benefits. The Great Grid upgrade will also boost the economy and create new green jobs. And best of all, you can continue doing the things you love, like watching the latest epic nature documentary or listening to this podcast while caring for the planet too. Find out more at nationalgrid.com. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. At KPMG, our people make the difference. Combining the power of people and technology, we uncover brighter insights, innovate bolder solutions, and create better data-driven outcomes. KPMG, make the difference. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello and welcome to the podcast, the nature and countryside podcast from BBC Countryfile magazine. And welcome to the very last episode in our season of Voices of the Countryside, where we've been hearing from farmers, naturalists, artists and many others associated with the green outdoors, as well, of course, as enjoying the wild voices of nature. And in this episode, Podcast stalwart Annabel Ross heads to Dartmoor with Emma Howard Boyd and Tom Dorbin of the Environment Agency to hear about the fascinating Headwaters Natural Flood Management Project, which aims to reduce flood risk to communities on and around Dartmoor using natural solutions. Plus, importantly, Annabel gets to ask some key questions of the Environment Agency and how it is dealing with the pollution threat to England's waterways. Listen on for some powerful insight into the future of our rivers. And apologies for some of the strong gusty wind on Dartmoor. We recorded this between storms, so forgive some of the wilder elements. And my name is Fergus Collins. I'm the host of the podcast. And if you're enjoying it, please do leave feedback and ratings on whichever podcast provider you use. And you can contact me on my email address, editor at countryfile.com. But without further ado, let's head to Dartmoor. So we're in the middle of Dartmoor National Park at the moment and we're walking up the side of Grippers Hill. It's an area where we've been trying to manage flooding in the community of Buckfastley. So we're just within the, the catchment of the Dean Burn, the watercourse of the Dean Burn. So we can see out to the south coast of Devon, we can see Tor Bay over in the distance. And we can see all the way over to the centre of the moor behind us as well. Oh, it's actually really beautiful. We've got the sun out at the moment. Um, thanks for the orientation. These um, flood defences that we're heading towards, what's special about them? They're part of a £15 million programme that we ran between 2018 and 2021 nationally to look at how we can use more natural solutions to help communities be more resilient to flooding. So traditionally we do things like build 
uh, concrete flood walls, flood storage areas that look very much like a water supply reservoir, but they're empty most of the time. Um, what we're going to see are leaky dams. I just need to open the gate. Oh, is here, is here snow or hail or something? It looks like hail coming down. Okay. This has been an extraordinary week for weather. We've had our three named storms, Dudley, Eunice and Franklin. We're not quite sure whether and when Gladys is on her way, but uh, despite what's happening on the world stage, what, we're, what we've been experiencing this week really sets out what we are likely to see more of from a climate change perspective. And... Very imminently, we're going to see a new report come out from the IPCC, the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, focusing on adaptation and resilience. And that is um, going to be a massive worldwide issue. Everything I'm hearing about that report puts what we've been experiencing in England, in the UK, into context over the next few decades. And... One of my roles as chair of the Environment Agency is to make sure that we are keeping attention on the long-term issue of climate change, very specifically how we get prepared for flooding and how, as part of our flood strategy, we're looking at all of the solutions. We've just been down in the town of Buckfastley where 120 properties are at risk of flooding. We've seen some of the responses at a property level that members of the community have put in place, so um, floodgates. But here we are looking at another important part of the solution to flooding, but also helping with our net zero commitments, and that is nature-based solutions. Um, Two things. Yeah. Are those ruby reds? Did anyone know? Ruby red Devons? I think they are. They look very cosy down there, but actually that tree looks like it might have come down in the storm. Yeah, I think that's, a, that's a recent fall from the storms. don't remember that one being down before. It's extraordinary. We're I'm in sunshine c- at the moment, aren't we? Yeah. And the, the, the couple are I comfortably. My second question, Emma, was not to put you on the spot about the Ruby Red Devons, but I think the Ruby Red Devons was... Um, I would just would love to know that are there... With the way... The world is at the moment, and let's talk about England because that's where you are. Do you not have days where you just want to stay under your duvet? Some of the best days that I experience are when I get out and see the great things that people are doing to respond to the climate and nature emergency. It could be so tempting to stay under the duvet, but actually the urgency that we're experiencing right now, there is no time for complacency and we've all got to build personal resilience to keep on working on the issues that are so important not just for this country but for the world as as a whole and for you know future generations too this is climate change the events that the world has been experiencing over the last couple of years show that this is Whilst a lot of attention needs to be put on our net zero commitments, we also need to make sure we're preparing for climate shocks because that is about saving lives and livelihoods. And that is an important thing to keep on working on, no matter how you might be feeling on an individual day-to-day basis. Okay, so that's what gets you out of bed in the morning. And um, 
So here we are today on, at the moment, a stunningly beautiful, if not cold, but very sunny day, Emma. And what do you love about what do you love about the countryside, and what do you hate? But what are your your likes and your dislikes of the English or British countryside? What I love about coming out into the countryside is that sense of being surrounded by beautiful landscapes and despite the weather despite the wind just look at what we are experiencing including standing in a bit of a bog bog, experiencing today it makes me feel so much better I'm I'm a cyclist that enjoys uh, enjoys going out for long slow cycle rides but it also gives me the opportunity to look at the countryside uh, in, in a in a slower motion it slows down my pretty hectic city life where I'm based in Bristol but a lot of my work is in London in Westminster but also traveling up and down the country I find it very difficult to shield some of the the things that we as humans are doing to the the countryside I find it very difficult to ignore the litter that we can see strewing our country lanes and I would love it if we were able to really embrace all of the focus on nature on nature as a source of well-being that so many people in this country have experienced through the pandemic and that we all become stewards of the environment and take care of it not just for now but for the future as well so are you the sort of person who would come out on a day like today with a rucksack and a picnic and go for the whole day is that something you'd love to do i there's nothing better than going out for a whole day cycle ride or a walk i don't do it enough but it's certainly something that i try and factor into weekends and make sure that I'm doing it round the year as well. Uh, despite weather, it's so... I know I feel so much better for getting out into the countryside. And when you're out at weekends, can you switch off from work? I... Particularly when I'm walking... I, I, sorry, particularly when I'm cycling, I find the focus of being in the moment... I'm a road cyclist, watching out for potholes, watching out for traffic, watching out for cars zooming down country lanes, that it allows me to clear up some of the what I've been experiencing throughout the week, and then also allows me to start thinking more about the solutions that we need. So I find uh, the repetitiveness of, of cycling, the being in the moment actually something that allows me to think differently about some of the things that I'm working on and perhaps get into a better place in terms of finding the solutions, thinking through the next steps that are necessary to join up what needs to be a a new level of collaboration to solve the climate emergency, nature emergency, in a way that we have never seen before. Okay, so that makes it sound like you don't really switch off, which is fine. Um, 
because we're very happy that you're in charge. So, how long have you been chair of the Environment Agency? So, I've been chair of the Environment Agency six years now. Six years, and how much longer will you be doing it? I have just over six months left in post. We've just caught you in time. A lot of us sort of presume we know what the Environment Agency does do, and we just don't even really think about it. Oh, the Environment Agency, yeah, they're looking after us. What are they actually doing? So I might just ask... Um, oh, there's a bog. Should we go... You lead go the way there, Tom. Oh, that wasn't very exciting. Um, Tom, <laughs> the Environment Agency, well... What is it you do down here in the southwest? Because that you've got a quite an interesting job, haven't you? Yeah, I, I love my job. So I'm a senior advisor in our flood and coastal risk management department. Uh, my role is to come up with strategic plans, help us work out how we're going to tackle the climate emergency, how we're going to help increase resilience of communities to flooding, uh, and start to identify where actually that's not going to be possible for much longer, and we might have to look at helping them adapt to climate change. You know, there's some. Oh really fascinating work that I think that will start to come to the forefront in, in a few years time um, I also develop capital programs to invest our funding that we get from DEFRA and the Treasury and run projects like the one we're having a look at today to help uh, learn how we can do new techniques but also you didn't, didn't you say you do this um, you have like a duty roster that you all... Yes. What's that? What's yeah, so most staff in the agency have a sort of secondary role around incident management. We're a Category 1 responder under the Civil Contingencies Act. And my particular role is I'm the flood warning duty officer for Devon. So a lot of the, at the moment, a lot of the River Severn has a flood alert, flood warning, or in some cases a severe flood warning, uh, telling people, you know, there's risk to life, there's risk to their home, or there's just sort of inconvenience to their day-to-day -day life. So... Uh, one week in every six, I drop my day job, and I do that for, for Devon. Do it for Devon? Yes. That's like a catchphrase. Um, I'm just looking behind you, Tom. Are these some trees that you have... Project. Yeah. Yeah, so um, one of the things I like to try and do with a, with a flood defence project is make it disappear into, into the town, into the community we've built it in. And what we've got here could just look like a dry stone wall. Uh, before we built this... It is a dry stone wall, so that's what it looks like. <laughs> yes. But before we built it, water would barrel down this gully behind us. In fact, there's a little trickle going through today, but it would be a torrent coming through here to up to sort of Emma's height of Emma's boots. Uh, and it would just shoot down here, causing loads of erosion. And Emma's boots are quite high, just, just, quite high. just to say, yeah. <laughs> up to her knees. <laughs> and if you imagine there's gullies like this, there's hundreds of gullies across a river catchment. Each one can be slowed down with small features like this scattered out across the landscape. So rather than building a large solution in the community, like a flood wall or a flood storage reservoir... Made of concrete. Made of concrete, which has a carbon, a carbon issue. You know, it's carbon and, um, concrete and steel are very carbon-intensive. Um, we can look at a myriad of different solutions like this upstream and see whether they work in tandem together to achieve something similar. So you've got the dry stone wall, and then the, what's this um, so under what the sort wall. of little wooden contraption this chain is, thing? This is called a buddle hole. So on Dartmoor, they're known, they're, the, the holes under a wall are known as a buddle hole, and it's to allow the passage of water under the wall and away, rather than ponding behind it and uh, causing a, a problem for the farmer. We've used that to our advantage here and sized the buddle hole so that it sort of restricts that torrent of water that would have come down previously. 
but uh, it's it's small enough to store water behind it but so sized so that it doesn't cause a structural problem and make the wall fall over and then presumably everything that's down there is also designed to slow the water absolutely as it approaches so it's going all the way down to the town so right yeah. yes all yeah. down to buckfastly the ethos of the whole project is that the sort of catchphrase is slowing the flow so there's a variety of different We've got several catchphrases today. Several catchphrases. <laughs> there's a variety of different techniques we can use to either get water into the land, hold it back on the land, or stop water, uh, stop as much runoff occurring in the first place. Now that could be through planting trees, it could be through building structures like this, leaky dams, restoring the floodplain, naturalising the, the way that the river is and, and, and it behaves. Um, all sorts of things. Beavers are also part of that mosaic as well. So. One of the Beavers are on trend, don't they? One of the things we're wanting to make sure we get right, because this is a circular walk, anybody could be coming on this walk, is how we make more people aware of the different interventions we've put in place. Because whilst Tom is right, we want everything to sort of disappear into the landscape. We also think it's incredibly important that people recognise the work that has gone on on the moors to protect the town below. And often the structures that we have put in place up and down the country, we have probably made people more aware of the fact that there's a nature reserve than the flood storage capabilities of the schemes we've put in place. And I think, again, we just are very keen to make sure in the right way that we're alerting the public to the things we are doing in partnership and that is something that is so important with this project we have been working with local environmental groups local farmers local landowners to get this project to work in the way that it is working we need people to understand what is happening and how we are protecting them but that's really interesting because if i was walking here on my own today I wouldn't think about it. I'd just be ambling along. I probably wouldn't even consider. But So do you not think you might want to put some information somewhere? Have you considered that? Or is that too basic? No, no, we have. It's one of the challenges of working in a protected landscape is we don't want to put loads of extra signage up and make a song and dance right here because obviously there's a visual impact to the moor. And one of the challenges with working on Dartmoor is a national park. It's also, you know, really valued for its archaeological interest. It's one of the sort of um, highest rated... uh, in Western Europe as a concentration of archaeology. So it's tricky to find a way that that we can do things that's visible, that's accessible, that people understand the solutions we're using without being too overt and too disruptive with the the landscape and and the sort of natural appearance of where we are. But new technologies can help. So using QR codes, for example, many people come out walking still with their phones and um, that is one way of getting access to that that information. So we discussed that the last time uh, I I was on this uh, particular walk. Yeah, I think a lot of the time, you know, you don't want to overburden us with sort of signage because then we probably just... Often signage, you just sort of read it and go, oh, okay, and you know maybe, but yeah. but just clever ways, new ways of 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 putting out the information so that people sort of respect the land a bit more. I sort of think that helps, doesn't it? So um, Emma's mentioned QR codes. We are going to be experimenting here with QR codes. You know, we've all seen them for checking into venues for COVID, so people are much more familiar with them now than they would have been a couple of years ago, and that can be quite unobtrusive. And we can attach that to a fence post or a gate or the wall behind us. And what we're designing is an engagement pilot where you can actually have a conversation with the, the wall. 
or have a conversation with one of the leaky dams and that kind of thing so that you can fit in the messages that we want to get across to people and we can signpost things like are they at risk of flooding do they know whether there's a flood group in the community they could work with and sign up for and all those sorts of things which is hard to get across without you know a massive uh, a massive display board or something like that we, talked, we need to hear it from the beaver yes we talked about <laughs> our flood strategy earlier where uh, we launched a flood strategy out to 2100 but have chunked it down into five-year action plans and within the five-year action plans and the the schemes we're designing there's a a growing place for nature-based solutions but also within our flood strategy is a, a desire to make sure that the general public are aware of the growing risk of flooding and other climate impacts and see it as part of their own responsibility to think about climate resilience at a community level. We analysed what happened in um, the floods in Europe, uh, what would have been the... If that weather system had hit England, would we be more prepared? And we discovered that in the analysis that we did that... A lot of what went wrong in Europe was partly the the scale of the challenge, but also people did not know what to do. And even in England, with all of the investment, the increased investment in our flood work, roughly two-thirds of those living with flood risk are not aware that they're living with that flood risk. And that's something that we need to change. We need to use every opportunity to alert the public to what they need to do. We have on our website, and we've been calling it out at every opportunity throughout the storms, people can put in their postcode and find out whether they're living with flood risk. And we're working with uh, mobile telecom companies and others to make sure that we can send alerts out wherever you are in the country that flood weather, flood um, floods are about to happen. I think I spotted the other day something from the Environment Agency, a little video or a photograph of a car uh, that had driven through a flood. And I think you said, uh, don't drive through a flood. It's like, really, do we have to be told that? People have to be told, don't drive through a flood. Because <laughs> really, on the road, yeah. they sort of see this massive river and they think, oh, I'm going to drive through because I want to go and get my pint of milk or whatever it is. Am I being really unfair? No, I think, sadly, there are quite a few people that do drive through flood water. I mean, you only need an egg cup full of water to ruin the engine in your car, which is a statistic that you know, shocks a lot of people. <laughs> that is um, a shock. And you, you can drive up to some flood water and you have no idea how deep it is if there isn't you know, one of our gauge boards or something like that to tell you. So is it an inch? Is it six feet? You don't know until you've started. And, and sadly, often a lot of people are prepared to have a go and find out the hard way. I, don't th- I, I think it's more getting, getting stuck yeah. and then the rescue effort yeah. has to be yeah. diverted yeah. to those individuals as opposed to where it's perhaps most needed, which is the people who are experiencing flooding there and then and may na- need In help with uh, evacuation moving to safety i do get this feeling that the environment agency i'm just going to put it out there to you both now 
is the Environment Agency gets quite a hard time generally from the public. It's like, oh, they're not doing what they're supposed to be doing and oh, we've got floods and oh, we've got sewage in our rivers and it's their fault and why can't I go swimming in my river or drink from my river or whatever they want to do or we want to do. I'm not saying they, I'm probably just as bad as the rest of them, I have no idea. But um, why is it such a complicated thing is it because that there isn't enough information coming from you or is it because your job is almost impossible we're working in an incredibly complex environment where the responsibilities for different aspects of the environment sit in very very different places even putting together a small project like this means getting individuals, organisations, local authorities on side to do the work. So I think that is one of the things that we all struggle with working on environmental issues is that it's not always at the centre of everybody's list of things to be dealing with. One of the great things about the 25-year environment plan, which ended up being in the Environment Bill was its ambition was about putting the environment into the heart of decision making. And then the complexity of getting all of the levers required to make environmental change line up. So yes we have, we have responsibility, we're a de- delivery body on flood work that we do. We are a regulator, an environmental regulator, regulating a whole raft of different sectors, whether it's water companies, some aspects of agriculture. Uh, We work with different um, waste companies. You name it, we will likely have an environmental regulation that we're working with different sectors. And lining up environmental work alongside the economic regulators, the financial regulators, is something that isn't always aligned. If you look at some of the penalties for financial... Should we keep walking? Because it's suddenly getting a bit cold, yeah. Are at a, ...have been at a very, very different multiple than where businesses, organisations that are acting outside of their... Uh, remit are the, the, the penalties that they will receive from those those companies that we're regulating. So, so again, it's complicated, and we are with our resources targeting our work in a way that are delivering the best that we can to achieve the results that we'd like to see. And that is easier said than done. What are you up against? What's your worst nightmare? <laughs> where, where to begin? That silenced you. <laughs> what it is, because I could go in so many different directions. And sometimes the starting point is to try and see how we can solve things and join up the dots. So a real strand to our work and one one of the things that is always at the top of my list of things to focus on is is the water thread. And it features in too much much water, flooding, too little water, drought and water quality. 
And one of the ways we need to respond to those issues is to integrate the way that we're working on them and use the range of different tools that we have to bring about change. One of the ways we have been working recently increasingly closely with is Ofwat, the economic regulator of water companies, to make sure that the way we are working with environmental regulators feeds through where possible into the way that Ofwat regulates water companies from a financial perspective. Sorry, can you what's Ofwat stand for? Ofwat is the Office of Water Regulation. Okay. It's Ofwat is the economic regulator of water companies. Okay. So, Tom, this is more of your natural flood defences going upstream. Yep. So, do you try and get to the source? Do you start? Ideally, we'd like to start in right at the top of the catchment. So, we've got measures which have been put in here on the top of Dean Common. Um, just down below us, there's the other river that goes through Buckfastly, which is the River Mardle. And we've got some similar structures right at the top of Mardle Head, at the very top of the catchment. There's a whole host of gullies all over Dartmoor that were created by this process called tin streaming, where um, in the Industrial Revolution, people would come and they would try and extract tin from the landscape through using you know, the, the direction of water and, and high flows to scour the soil away and expose the tin. So that's left us a really interesting archaeological sites, which we could alter and adjust, but it makes it a real challenge to balance all the stuff that we've been talking about we could achieve for environmental benefit with that archaeological interest. It's a, a balance between the two. Dartmoor's got three ancient oak woodlands on it, which are fantastic. Unfortunately, it's been under a lot of pressure during lockdown with increased visitor numbers in very small areas, but the whole landscape below the level that we're at now would have been oak woodland or ancient woodland you know, in the Bronze Age. And it was cleared for fuel and for, uh, for building materials and things like that. It leaves us now on this plateau that we're on, which is, is almost a monoculture. It's a very grass-dominated landscape. Down in the valleys, there's lots of woodland. And what we're trying to promote through the project is trying to sort of blend the difference between the two a little bit more. So it's not a stark boundary between the upland and the woodland. And, and there's a, a transition zone. So the leaky dams on the top hold the water back in the open space. We do some peatland restoration. We work really closely with the water company and other partners right up on the top to do some peatland restoration. Um, and that's been proven to reduce the amount of water that comes out of that area of the catchment by almost a third in some instances. And each of these little structures that are the sort of size of between a, a paddling pool and a swimming pool, depending on which one you look at, add to that. And depending what size you are. Depending on what size you are as well. Absolutely, <laughs> yeah. it's, uh, they all add up to a bigger, you know, the... the some is the, of, um, greater than the individual parts once we go down the catchment so it's about a lot of things working together uh, changing the landscape maybe restoring it back to what's been lost but adding to it as we go down this gully a series of interventions where there are stones i think this is just stones blocking little stone walls, little stone walls blocking um the, what, where the water would normally be rushing down and creating pools of water. So slowing so it. Literally right? slowing yeah. the flow. Right. And, and each of, and they're probably 20 metres apart and. About a metre wide. Yep, yeah, blo blocking the gully, allowing it to trickle through. And 
where water is like being stored. Behind you because of the wind. All of, all of that will stop the water, the volume of water reaching uh, where where the town is, where water is rushing through gullies there. Instead of this reaching the town in, have we have we actually got the hours that are the, the time that will will slow down? Do we do we know those? small catchment this the the river here is about an 11 to 12 square kilometer catchment so the response time is really fast so to issue the warnings that emma was talking about earlier we like to give two hours notice and this is well below that length of time but this gully that we're standing on here we've done some monitoring of this particular series of dams and worked out that just these dams in here you know there's only sort of 15 or so have slowed the water the peak of the water here by 20 minutes so if we can buy an extra 20 minutes, that's an extra 20 minutes the community has to respond, to do the things they need to do, to move the valuables, to move to safety. 20 Gosh, minutes can be a, a hell of a difference yeah. in a, a flood incident. Oh, they can put those um, guards in that we saw earlier. They've Absolutely. got those sort of metal guards yes. in front of their front doors. Um, sorry, just as we're looking out across this incredible view, um, I wanted to ask, what's the town way in the distance? So that's the back of Tor Bay. Oh, that's, that's uh, Tor Bay. So that's the coast. That you coast. can see there, yeah. You yeah, can see so the you coast can see the, sea. the horizon. Okay. And down to the right, we've got uh, so the, oh, gosh, the yeah. two river catchments we're working in on this part of the moor feed down into the River Dart, which is in front of us, mm. where there's that sort of mottled cloud uh, pattern going across the fields and the woodland. And if we follow it down to the right, you've got Buckfast Abbey. You can see the spire down in the distance. And the Dart catchment goes out to sea at Dartmouth down to the right. So we can see the entire river catchment below us and if we turn around to the right unfortunately it's just behind the brow but the, the head of the catchment is just over there as well so you can literally see the way that the water would move through the entire landscape from source to sea here it all seems so peaceful and beautiful doesn't it yeah. we've been looking in a couple of catchments on the western side of the moor at how much livestock there is and actually if they're out over the winter when the soil is uh, you know, full of water and potentially quite spongy. Like now? Like now. You can feel it's a little bit spongy beneath the foot. And they can actually compress the soil, which makes all the sort of sponge factor in the soil, all of the, the pores in the soil close up. And in, in a positive way? In a bad way. Oh. So it means that it doesn't act like a sponge as much. Oh, you think sorry. about you dip a sponge into a bath and all the water percolates into oh. the holes. The soil isn't able to behave like that. So oh dear. one of the things we try and do is work with the landowners, work with the farmers, work with the, the agricultural regulators to say, is that level of stocking fit for purpose? Is it causing a problem? And there's a real fine balance between the way that farmers need to farm and their business model and the needs of society. This is very different to the ones we just saw. This is a wooden structure, not a stone wall. Why did you have to put wood here instead of stones, Tom? So part of the, the nature of the project is to experiment. It was basically a big research and development project, so we could look at how the different materials behaved, how they functioned relative to one another, and what the pros and cons of each one were. So on the project, we've built over 350 of these structures across the moor from a variety of different materials. We've seen you know, a dry stone wall structure, we've seen piled stone on the walk already this one's a, a sort of engineered uh, timber sleeper type structure and then further down we've got willow ones which we've tried to get grow and become sort of a living feature um, the difference between this and the ones before there were some initial kind of comments with people looking at the landscape interests you know the aesthetics of the national park about putting timber structures up here but this one's silvered really nicely the, the, the timber is weathered and it's a really nice gray 
structure and you could be forgiven if they're thinking it's concrete a little distance know, away from it. there was a moment when we came over the brow of the hill where it just looked like <laughs> It's a like, oh no, Tom, concrete slabs. You've been so, lying to me. <laughs> so the ethos of the project is to move away from concrete as much as possible. And this structure has no metal in it at all. I it, love these wooden pegs. They're oh. fantastic. built into hold, holding, the structure holding yeah. it up. And we work with a local farmer here, so didn't the, we? So the, the more up here is farmed by a, a, it's common so it's got graziers on it but this structure was built by one of the the graziers uh, sons and uh, it uses no metal at all it's got dowels in it like some sort of old kind of furniture stru- uh, construction or tudor house construction that you'd see so it's pegged together um, the only thing that isn't timber is this rock here down below the feature and that's where water will pond behind this dam and it will come over the top of it in, through this little notch that we've got and rather than just allowing it to kind of scour and erode away the bed of the gully, that rock is there as a splash plate, as we call it. So it's a real simple feature, so simple. but it just allows the water to trickle over it more gently than scouring away violently and eroding and making the structure unstable. It's the attention to detail that's so incredible, isn't it's it? And all the little things that will make... Again, we need these projects to last. We need... Because this is about better protecting the community below we need to give some uh, assurance that these these schemes which will be monitored but will will last and continue to provide that protection that extra that vital 20 minutes or so that will give more time for people to get ready for the water cascading down into the town I was going to say this isn't really it seems like a really nice project in a way because it's not massive because you've got such a massive job on your hands both of you particularly you Emma not saying that you haven't Tom um, but you're um, but you're an engineer as well aren't you so that's why you're quite excited about this wooden structure and the fact that it's got no metal because some it's been so heavily yeah. engineered so yeah. I mean, my, my background is I'm actually a geographer and then I started working for the agency I've worked for the agency for nearly 17 years now and the agency very kindly paid for me to go and do some engineering training whilst uh, once I started so my uh, background within the the organization is running the sort of projects where we would do coastal defenses or build concrete walls and what have you through communities but in the background has always been that aspiration to do something as as uh, low impact as possible using natural processes and nature as much as I can and that's why I'm really proud of what we've done up here and really excited about opportunities like this it's it's a really uh, different way of doing things I've had to kind of relearn things that I would have done before and uh, it's been fascinating going back to sort of the drawing board and making it up from, from scratch that's great and we've been working with the Department of Education talking about schools to make sure that the projects like this, flood projects that we're responsible for, are part of the curriculum so that young people understand what is going to be needed and what can be done to solve some of the problems that uh, come from uh, rainfall, sea level rise. One other amazing project that I saw uh, up in um, Glasgow at COP26 was where on the River Ribble we have worked with Minecraft to show how a flood scheme is working along the River Ribble and school children are going to... It's, it's been out um, 
and, and sampled by a, a small number of schools, more schools are going to be able to use Minecraft as a way of learning about flood risk, but also working within Minecraft to experiment with the solutions that will make a difference and protect the communities along the River Ribble. It is so exciting. And again, the sort of uh, collaboration that the Environment Agency is doing with the private sector to really make sure more people are engaging, not just with the, the problems of climate change, but the solutions. We have to show that we can deal with climate change and get ahead of climate change and this is just one way of illustrating that work. A host of gullies like this sweeping down the hillside with, with dams all the way down them so it just shows that one structure won't do the job and we're not saying that you know building a leaky dam up here would, would do anything meaningful in Buckfastly a couple of miles down the river but a a smattering of you know hundreds of these structures across the, the landscape you can see how easily they disappear into what we're looking at that they collectively will do um, meaningful work and this is part of it, it too I'm, I'm assuming the ponding that we're seeing here below yes. this wooden structure is because of the because stone the structure that is as we head into the next gully absolutely so if you kind of look at it you can see the level of the stone dam is roughly at the bottom of the timber one above it so what we do is we look at how far back will the water project up the slope to work out how far apart to locate them um, when it gets into steeper gullies like the two that are behind us, it's a little bit tricky because you'd have so many structures it becomes a little bit complex. So in the one right behind you, Annabelle, what we're looking at doing is putting in a, a valley mire, which is actually sort of very localised peatland restoration and, and sort of wetland creation along that gully back over the hilltop. So this is lovely uh, day trip on Dartmoor with you, with this really 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 great project because even I'm beginning to understand what you're doing here and I'm no engineer but um, how do you take this to the rest of the country <laughs> what's, what's happening in the rest of the country so this, this project was one of uh, a whole batch that were funded okay. as part of that £15 million investment that we talked about earlier It's um, those projects have been tasked with learning how these techniques work helping them become more commonplace in how we tackle things. You know, engineered solutions like the walls, the storage reservoirs still have a place. These things can be complementary to those features and in some instances may help the ones that we already own and operate last longer and provide a higher level of protection for a longer period of time as climate change increases. So there's a variety of projects in Cumbria, Yorkshire, East Anglia, the Midlands, the South East just like this one that have done similar things different landscapes different solutions but collectively they've given us a fantastic evidence base to learn how to do more of this in the future so you it sounds like you're winning hopefully i think it's just another piece of the puzzle uh you know we do other things to help people manage flood risk we we give them a warning we look at the mapping we understand the problem in the first place uh, we manage a lot of assets that we already have we can deploy temporary pumps temporary barriers so it's just piecing all of those things together to best effect where we're able to and, and looking at how affordable it is in certain locations and how to get the best out of that system in combination. With that flood water, what's in that water? I've read that uh, between England, Scotland, Wales and Northern Ireland, England comes really badly on the, on the list of contaminated natural water. And this is where so much of the work of the Environment Agency does focus on water. Too much, 
too little and its quality. And as we described uh, earlier, where from here we can see where the source is, right down to the mouth of the river, and the landscape in between, there are so many different interventions that are taking place along that river. But whether it's through agriculture, whether it's through uh, wastewater sewage, whether it's through runoff from roads and uh, the, the, the sort of substances, tyre fragments, etc., getting into the water, we know that we're also dealing with water quality issues. And we know that where we've got to, and it is our data that we're putting out there showing the quality of water, that we're not in the best place. We recognise that more needs to be done. And we're working through our regulatory powers with the other relevant water regulators, there's Ofwat, which is the economic regulator in particular, to make sure that with water companies we're making the right sort of interventions to keep sewage out of rivers. None of this is straightforward. We're dealing with infrastructure that was in many instances built years ago and so the multiple interventions along the river will cost, in many instances, huge amounts of money. We also need to work out what the quicker interventions are to improve water quality. But some of what we're dealing with has a historic element too. And uh, what, what I don't think any of us can do is promise changes overnight. And thanks to the amazing campaigning up and down the country and the focus that more and more people have put on the quality of our environment, we know we've got to work together to come up with the solutions to make sure that the polluter is paying for the pollution that gets into our rivers. I think... I'm really mindful of the way that uh, Greta Thunberg and you know, the, the younger generations are sort of much more aware of the climate emergency and much more accepting that stuff needs to be done. We need to work at pace and there's a lot of support for what we're doing. And if you go back, you know, I, like I said, I've been working for the agency for nearly 16, 17 years. That support and that kind of societal awareness wasn't as strong. And I think actually there's a lot more drive behind what we do now than there was back then, which is fantastic. The other thing, you know, I think we'll see more projects like this. This is a massive partnership, this project. We couldn't have done it on our own, and, and Dartmoor National Park Authority have played a big role, as have the Rivers Trust, the Wildlife Trust, water companies, national highways. So I think... Local farmers. Local farmers, the community, the flood group, absolutely. You know, loads of different bodies. And um, I think as we start to understand how all of these natural systems that either cause us problems or present opportunities interact and what we can do with them and what other people are doing with them and where the funding comes from. There's lots of opportunity to improve things. It's, it's always going to be a challenge because climate change is making it worse. But for me, that's, that's why I do what I do. I like the problem solving. And I think there's lots of that, lots more opportunity because there's more people doing what we do. You're not on your own. No, absolutely. Did you bring the coffee, Emma? I wish I had. And from the windy wilds of Dartmoor, we're back in the podcast studio. And I'm back with Hannah and Jack. And unfortunately, we're, we're remote again. 
for various reasons. We're all we're all back in, back in home studios. But yeah, before we before we get on and chat and find out what we've all been doing in the wild world in the past week, that was fascinating to hear how the Environment Agency is tackling big issues like flooding and biodiversity loss in one sort of fell swoop with these leaky dams. And I was also pleased that Annabelle was able to talk about some of the big pollution issues that are facing England's rivers. And of course, Environment Agency is the regulator and the monitor for England's rivers. And there's been a huge amount of controversy, lots of criticism of the agency. So it was good to hear from Emma about what they're doing and how they're doing and some of the challenges they face, because often we sort of hear all the criticism, but we don't hear their point of view. Obviously, we expect you, the listeners, to have plenty of thoughts on what you've just heard. So do email me. I'm Fergus Collins. My email address is editor at countryfile.com. Well, from dams to two damn fine people, Hannah and Jack, um, lovely to see you, of course. Have you been out on the river at all? Have you seen any exciting watery things? Have you seen any beavers? I, I mean, if we're talking about rivers, I did have a day the other day for work uh, down in London, which obviously has got one of the, the big rivers, the River Thames. But I think I overheard someone the other day saying that the River Thames actually isn't like the dirtiest most polluted river there is it's actually potentially one of the cleaner ones well yeah i I mean do you remember when the three of us went to see the source of the river and Mm -hmm. there's a two very good podcast i say very good podcasts they're excellent podcasts but uh where we where we where we traipsed around looking for the source of of the thames and it was very clean at that point and i think obviously historically lots and lots of towns and london at the end of it it was really badly polluted by of Victorian times and all through the 20th century till about the 1950s, 60s, when there was a bit of a clean-up. I think now salmon do swim up the Thames again, but recently it has... I've seen report, lots of rather sad reports about it being becoming quite polluted again because it does flow through, again, lots of cities, lots of towns. There's a lot of sewage going into the river. There's a lot of household sort of grey water from dishwashers and washing machines. Just bad sort of plumbing, really. And then there is runoff from farming, which is another very big insidious problem. So poor old Thames, not as clean as it could be. But again, you know, not the whole river isn't bad. It certainly can be some, some stretches of it, a bit like the Y, a bit like the Seven. There are bits which are just terrible and there are bits that are... Yeah, you can go and you can still well swim. The thing is, overall, it's just a source of great sadness and shame that we, in the 21st century, 2022, we've got dirty rivers in Britain. When we've got all the technology, all the understanding, it's just become a, yeah, there are lots and lots of reasons. And um, you know, as, we, as we heard in, um, in Annabelle's interview there, it's complex, but solvable, I think. I'd like to bring up the subject of beavers just because they in, in Dartmoor they're using these sort of hard they're using sort of stone walls and and kind of structures to to create leaky dams but elsewhere more and more places are using beavers to do the same job and that that's really exciting and um, I know that Annabelle in our next season is going to be out on the, on a canoe with beavers hopefully so something to l- listen out for there Hannah have you been uh, I, you sent me a photo of a river I know you've been on a river. What have you been up to? A stream. A <laughs> stream. 
yeah, um, I went home this weekend and had a lovely time um, seeing all sorts of nature, like missile thrushes, my first butterflies of the year. So I got a proper nature fix. Okay, back in Gower. You've been home? Yes. Oh, okay, so what have you seen? What, have you, what else apart from the missile thrushes? I think the peregrines followed me. You've got peregrines um, still in, in followed you all yeah. the way to Gower. Yeah. Oh, get over yourself. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So, so popular with peregrines. I'm just very attractive. <laughs> Prey item. Yeah, so saw some of those. Bumblebees. It's kind of incredible what the, dif- the difference between um, what's going on there and what's going on in the city. Spring is definitely happening. Lovely. Yeah. 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 I've sort of really noticed. I mean, it's just every single day. We're now recording this in very early April. Just the crux of the most perfect time of the year for birdsong, spring flowers. The celandines are just everywhere. It's an amazing, amazing wildflower. I think a lot of people don't appreciate them because they're probably out, not out walking so much at this time of year. But my goodness, the verges, meadows full of them. And then by, you know, three, four or five weeks' time, they're gone and you just end up with sort of green fields again or buttercups take over. But, yeah, wonderful. Wood anemones in the local woods. I can already see the green shoots, really vibrant green shoots of bluebells. And, yeah, it's it's just it's a, it's a marvellous time. And I know we we often talk about loss and we're longing for greater biodiversity and wildlife, but, gosh, just a, a walk anywhere in the countryside at the moment still get lovely choruses of birds so it's it's not let's not be i say this to myself not get too doomy and gloomy i have got a rabbit update for you if you want some good news yes please i think last week i mentioned about the rabbit that was hopping around the garden and i believe now i've seen him most days i think he's living in the neighbor's bush really the little yeah little rabbits popping in and out of that bush every time we see him and he kind of Jumps in and out of there. There's another little hedge he sort of hops into and hops back out. And I think our garden's sort of become the restaurant. And, uh, <laughs> he comes, has a little sit, nibbles our grass for a bit. That's a little look round and then hops off, off back into the bush again. And I, I, I did look up. I was like, what, what can you do if there's a little rabbit hopping around by you? I think you can leave a bit of water out for them, which I've sort of done. Um, but it's just sort of keeping your grass, having a few flowers in there, a few daisies and stuff that you can come and have a little chomp on and uh so I, I'm, I'm feeling quite privileged to be great the, the rabbit great. restaurant the power of a bit of wild garden uh, you can get anything but it's it's that it's like you've got to just leave a little bit wild in your garden i think that's probably the one thing that i would if i could encourage anyone listening that if if you want a bit of wildlife just let leave a little bit just don't don't, don't overdo the gardening interestingly is that my garden's not like it's not i've not just left it it's like I've, I've, there is bits of just normal grass, but there are bits that I've got little shrubs and there's a few little patches where I've just sort of left it to have a few, a few little wildflowers and stuff like that. So it's not like I've just completely left it to overgrow, which I think a lot of people think you've got to do. A couple of the gardens around me are a bit more like that. They've just sort of been left to do what they do. But this little rabbit seems to kind of prefer the bit of grass with a few wildflowers in it. So the, the garden doesn't look messy which I think some people worry about that, you, that people are asking you to make your garden look messy for nature, which is not, I don't think is the case. It's You can still have a nice looking garden and it still be beneficial to 
local wildlife. Totally agree with that. Yeah, it's not like, yeah, I don't mean letting it go. It's just that not over-tidying, not over-spraying mm. things, not kind of chopping everything down. Leave a few things, heads on dead flowers and just leave a little bit of the lawn to get a bit longer. Don't weed out every single dandelion. They're beautiful, mm-hmm. beautiful flowers. And I think if I, I think about dandelions a lot, and that's what I do, and that people go to great lengths to eradicate them from their gardens and then buy in plants that are really similar, like marigolds, which I think dandelions are absolutely magnificent. Why would you just live with it and enjoy it for its own sake? It was beautiful, big, blousy yellow flower that people would pay a fortune. If we didn't have them in our gardens, people would pay a fortune for them. So... Uh, it's so interesting the mentality about weeds anyway that is a subject perhaps for our next season which is wild britain where we're going to spend 12 episodes just enjoying some of this nature around us and trying to capture some of that audibly beautiful landscapes i think is how i'd like to describe it i've got an adventure into a secret valley which i'm going to really enjoy sharing with you all and i can't wait i'm just going to go on my own and see what's there we've got I had a roam around the New Forest with naturalist Dominic Cousins. I've just been listening to that. It's great. He made, he's, it's like a lesson in birdsong. It really was a, a, a magnificent sort of conjuring of wild things from air, bush and grass. It was lovely. And then we've got, got our dear friend Kevin Parr out looking for hen harriers on some Wessex downland. And we hope, Hannah, you're going to delight us with a wonderful wildflower adventure somewhere in South Wales. Yeah, there's a lot to see. Uh, and hopefully the three of us will do a, do an adventure together. But we've got lots of other things. I did mention Annabelle out on the river looking for beavers and there'll be plenty more. But listen out for that. We'll be starting it next week straight away. My goodness, not even a break. No rest for the wicked. But it's so exciting out there. So we're going we're gonna to see it, make the most of it. A big thank you finally to Annabelle, Emma and Tom for that adventure in Dartmoor. Thank you, Hannah and Jack, for being here and helping me through this this series. We've had a great time. 13 episodes of Voices of the Countryside. I think it's been brilliant. And do let us know what you think, please. Send your thoughts and your reviews and your likes and your feedback, whatever podcast provider you use. But you can email me, as I said, my email address, editor at countryfile.com. I always love to read your missives and some of them will print in Countryfile magazine, of which I'm also the editor, and some... We'll get Hannah to read out and Jack to read out in our podcast post bag. So thank you so much for listening. And from me and the team, goodbye.